Hello, Metro Augusta, and hello, Georgia, and hello to you wherever you are. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the July 5th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. As always, today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we proudly provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. If you have not already, please follow Local Matters on Facebook. And of course, we ask you to sub subscribe to our YouTube channel. All of our episodes are uh, there are links to all of our episodes that are posted on the Facebook page every Wednesday afternoon, right after the radio version runs, we post on Facebook. And every now and then we'll do a video episode. So please subscribe to the Local Matters Podcast of Georgia YouTube channel so that you get a notification whenever we drop a new video. Well, today I am doing something that I have not done in a long time. And that is a solo episode. As you know, uh, we've been having guests on every week. I think the last time that I did a solo episode was probably back in February. Um, today, we've got one of those just really heavy topics that warrants a good deal of explanation. And I felt like it was appropriate that I go solo today. So I hope you find this to be very educational and informative and, again, help you understand the who, what, and why about things that happen in our country. Uh, this particular time, our topic is not so much a local topic as it is a national and state topic. And that is what everybody has been talking about recently. And that is the decision of the United States Supreme Court related to affirmative action in university admissions. Um, first, uh, everybody's been offering their opinions on this one. Um, I will too. And the first thing I have to say is that I wasn't surprised. Uh, this is an expected result, given the number of conservative appointees to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I had uh, no surprise about this. Um, didn't catch me off guard from the standpoint that that is just sort of a logical progression in terms of where we've been headed with the appointment appointees to the court. Um, next thing I also wanted to point out is that I did a good bit of research for this episode, and one of the things that I ran across was that affirmative action in university admissions, that is race-based college admissions policies, has already been banned in at least nine states. Those states are Idaho, Arizona, Florida, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, Washington, California, and Michigan. So we knew that affirmative action was already uh, something that had been declared illegal in those particular states. And we also know, in case you weren't aware, in the state of Georgia, uh, Georgia does not have an official ban like those nine states that I just identified, but Georgia universities, the university system of Georgia, that is, which includes 26 colleges and universities, mm -hmm. 
has not practiced affirmative action since the early 2000s. So the prediction is in Georgia, this will have a very limited impact on students because it's something that they were not doing anyway. Uh, for those of you who would like a good little definition of affirmative action uh, to help, I think it's one of these terms that we have been using. We kind of think we know what it means, but I want to lay it out for you. Uh, affirmative action refers to a policy aimed at increasing workplace and educational opportunities for people who are underrepresented in various areas of our society. It focuses on demographics with historically low representation in leadership and professional roles. And the efforts are considered to be race conscious. That is, as in this case, college admissions decisions are made, race is considered. So it's not like they're blindly looking at the applications of the students and not knowing if the student is Latinx or Asian or uh, African-American or white, um, those admissions officers know um, what the race of the applicant is at the time that they make those decisions. And it is used as a factor. Some schools use them to a large degree, some to a very small degree, but it's just the idea that they know uh, what the race is and make decisions knowing that um, as they uh, decide what uh, young person is admitted to a university and which one is not. Um, obviously, at the university level, the goal is to increase the enrollment of minorities and women to improve their opportunities and outcomes. Uh, this is something that's been going on probably since the 60s and 70s. Uh, affirmative action has a storied history in our country. And I, in fact, as part of this research as well, want to look to see when that term came about how it was used initially. And I actually found out something that was pretty surprising to me. And that is that the term has been around since the mid thirties. Uh, first, it was used in an employment context uh, and it was designed to ensure that affirmative actions, deliberate steps were made to create better treatment for American workers. Um, it starts with the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, which was better known as the Wagner Act. And that legislation established the National Labor Relations Board and collective bargaining. So collective bargaining is a fancy term for unions, basically is the ability of groups of workers to go collectively represented by a union to their employers to ask for better working conditions. And that bargaining, of course, relates to negotiation. So a group of workers represented by a union goes to their employer to ask for and then negotiate for certain benefits or other aspects of their working conditions. So when it was first used, it was decreed that employers using discriminatory labor practices would be required to take affirmative action. So that's the origin of the term. Uh, at first, it was not race-based. Race -based. Later on, it evolved into that. But at the very beginning, it was just related to the American workforce and establishing better working conditions for them. 
A few years after that, in 1941, civil rights activist A. Philip Randolph led a nationwide effort protesting segregation in the armed forces and related industries. He was actually planning to host a march on Washington, uh, but that was head all, headed off by then President Franklin Roosevelt, who issued an executive order which created the first Fair Employment Practices Committee. And that committee forced defense contractors to provide for the full and equitable participation of all workers in defense industries without discrimination. That document did not use the term affirmative action, uh, but it did lay the groundwork for later implementation of public policy in this area. Next, President Dwight D. Eisenhower built on Roosevelt's work with another executive order in 1953, which created the Anti-Discrimination Government Contract Committee. Then from in 1961, President John F. Kennedy signed another executive order which called on government contractors to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to race, creed, color, or national origin. Kennedy's executive order set up a committee on equal employment opportunity and they worked with uh, 400 employers on a voluntary basis. These were some of the nation's largest industrial employees, employers, which all agreed to offer equal opportunity programs. Later on, the next president, of course, was President Lyndon Johnson. And he actually used the phrase affirmative action in a way that established it in our lexicon uh, he talked about placing the Secretary of Labor, or he did through executive order, place the Secretary of Labor in charge of administering affirmative action provisions. And he also used the term affirmative action in public presentations. Most notably, one of those speeches was a graduation uh, speech at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where President Johnson talked about how it wasn't enough just to have laws in place to prohibit discrimination. And he argued that more proactive measures were necessary. He talked about how you couldn't take a man who for years had been hobbled by chains, liberate that man, bring him to the starting line of a race and say, you're free to compete with everybody else. He knew that competition would not be fair. So he issued that executive order to take affirmative action to ensure racial equality in hiring and employment. The next step was taken by the next president, who of course was Richard Milhouse Nixon. He issued another executive order in 1969, which called for unilateral affirmative action in all government employment. So several of those other presidents were Democrats, uh, but Nixon, most definitely was a Republican, which goes to show that at that time, both Republicans and Democrats had gotten to the point where they were pretty much on the same page regarding the need to ensure that there was not discrimination and that deliberate steps, affirmative steps 
were taken to ensure that there was not discrimination in government employment and contracting. The term wasn't used, uh, the affirmative action term that is, was not used so much in terms of an educational context until later on. It was another decision of the Supreme Court uh, when it got into education, that was in 1968, there was a case called Green versus County School Board of New Kent County, Virginia. And that decision mandated that all school boards provide a plan to end segregated systems in their districts to come into compliance with the Brown versus the Board of Education uh, decision from 1954. So we see a gradual evolution. Uh, the law is getting stronger and stronger in favor of efforts to ensure that there is diversity, wasn't called diversity, equity, and inclusion back then. It was called equal employment and um, anti-discrimination, anti-segregation, uh, things like that. So the terminology changed, but the concept itself um, has been in place for quite, quite a while now. So that's where we are in terms of education and getting into education. A next step I want to do, the next thing I want to do is research, you know, how many schools actually have affirmative action policies. And to my surprise, it was not as many as I would have thought. It's actually probably less than 200 colleges and universities in this country. Um, about 100 public colleges, looks like 59 or so of the larger private schools. And those are the more selective schools, too. So you're looking at less than 200 schools out of a total of 2,800 colleges in the United States that grant four-year degrees. So affirmative action is not something that was happening everywhere. Um, so again, that minimizes, I think, the number of people who are going to be affected by this decision. As I referenced earlier, the University of System Georgia has 26 schools and they stopped using race as a factor in admissions decisions following a 2000, year 2000 court case that ended the practice. There were three white women who were denied admission to the University of Georgia. They sued, alleging that they'd been discriminated against. And the University of Georgia didn't even fight the lawsuit. They just gave up, lost the case, and ended the policy of race-conscious admissions throughout the entire university system of Georgia. So this hadn't been a thing in Georgia since 2000, over 23 years. As far as I can tell, Emory University is the only college in Georgia that practices affirmative action. Uh, they've been fairly aggressive, and I looked at their numbers that actually have uh, roughly 13% of their population is African-American. They have a significant number of students who are first-generation college students, and they have a significant percentage of students that qualify for the Pell Grant. So Emory appears to have been the most progressive college in the state of Georgia as it relates to affirmative action. Just so you understand something about the case um, that the Supreme Court decided is actually two cases, and they were brought by an organization called Students for Fair Admission. But it was a group of Asian students uh, who, who brought this. Um, the idea to them was that even though they had 
higher scores. And when I talk about scores, I'm thinking about SAT scores largely. The notion was that they had higher test scores, but still a lower percentage of Asian American students were admitted to both uh, one private school, which is Harvard University, and one public school, which is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So uh, it was brought on behalf of uh, Asian applicants to those schools, uh, highlighting that those policies violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I know that was a mouthful, but just, you know, bear with me here as we try to get through this. Um, I actually looked at some statistics from Harvard. Um, some of these folks have incredibly high test scores. Uh, you look at revealed, um, their research revealed that Asian Americans admitted to Harvard earned an average SAT score of 767 across all sections of the test. And every section of the test has a maximum score of 800. So for a score of 800, the average Asian admitted to Harvard had a score of 767. That's near perfect scores. Um, it's also true that Asian American students saw the lowest acceptance rate of any racial group, um, according to an analysis of that same data set. Uh, white students saw the second lowest acceptance rate and African American students saw the highest acceptance rate. So this is the basis upon which this litigation was brought. Um, of course, the Supreme Court was not, not unanimous with this. It was a 6-3 decision. Uh, the most vocally opposed to the decision were uh, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Kentanji Brown-Jackson. Um, they were very critical of this, um, and the decision had one, what I consider to be oddity uh, here, is that they outlawed affirmative action practices for all colleges and universities in the country with the exception of the U.S. military academies. Uh, there, they saw some value in increasing or taking affirmative action to increase the number of officers of color um, because they saw diversity as being important, particularly when you consider that many of the rank and file, the enlisted personnel consist of people of color. Um, as a side note, one day I was out at Fort Gordon and I was just driving around and I saw some of the troops and I was amazed at how black and how brown those troops were. But when you get to the officer level, they're predominantly white. So uh, the Supreme Court, the majority of the Supreme Court, even those who outlawed or banned this practice, the practice of race conscious admissions for other colleges and universities, said, uh, agreed that it need to stay in place for the military academy. So interesting, sounds almost like a double standard. Um, and the two uh, justices, Sotomayor and Jackson were very, very much opposed uh, to the way that that was handled. One of the other things that they did not do, which I also, I, have, I personally have a problem with, and that is they didn't say anything about the legacy policies that many of these elite universities use, which is to say that if a parent attended Yale or Harvard or some other Ivy League school, 
the uh, children of those parents get a preference in terms of admissions. And that in and of itself sets those schools up to lack diversity because the parents of many of the students who are applying now did not have the opportunity to ever go to one of those more prestigious universities. But they did leave that in place. Um, and that is as a preference. So there's no longer a preference based upon race, but there's a preference based upon uh, whether your uh, parent attended uh, certain schools that enacted or used that policy. I will also highlight two other things about the decision that I learned in my research. And one of those is that this does not go into effect until 2028. So there are five more years of what we see now, uh, and then there'll be an evolution into a different uh, admissions policy um, by force, according mm -hmm. to this, in, in 2028. Also, I uh, want to highlight that race can be considered in a very limited basis uh, in some decision-making, which is to say, as students submit their college essays with the applications, as they submit those, they can make reference to their race. So they do have ways of making their race known. Um, the Supreme Court ruled that it's okay for them to discuss their experiences growing up as a member of a certain racial group, what challenges they faced and how they overcame those challenges and discrimination, et cetera. Um, they view these as compelling expressions of character and perspective that can highlight the value of diversity. So it can be brought up, but in a very limited context as compared to what's going on now. So um, Judge Roberts, uh, Chief Judge, as he wrote his uh, opinion says, a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to the student's courage and determination. Nothing in this opinion shall be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race has affected his or her life. So that's what we have there. Um, uh, I did um, also look to see, well, hey, where do schools go from here uh, in terms of what they can do to ensure that there's going to be diverse classes? It appeared in some of those other states like Michigan, for instance, where um, they no longer uh, look at race or conscious of race and making decisions. The percentage of African-American students at the University of Michigan's Ann Arbor campus actually decreased. Um, so knowing that that has been the history, uh, some other schools are looking at ways uh, in California, particularly University of California, Davis, California banned uh, race uh, based uh, admissions decisions a long time ago. So UC Davis. Uh, medical school in particular, where there's definitely a need for more people of color to practice medicine, particularly in our lower income and rural communities, uh, they put in place an index, so to speak, a, a socioeconomic disadvantage scale, SED, where they ask questions of the students. Um, there's a score that each applicant gets from zero to 99, taking into account their life circumstances, such as family income and parental education. So they look at those factors, they assign a score, and they combine that socioeconomic disadvantage scale with the traditional measures that all schools use, such as grades, 
test scores, letters of recommendation, essays, and interviews. So it is a broader approach, knowing that many students who can perform perfectly well in college may not necessarily do well on an ACT or an SAT. They may not have had the highest grades when they were in, in high school or in college, but there are other factors to be considered that means that that student may contribute an awful lot to the student body and later contribute a lot to their chosen profession. And that is why uh, University of California at Davis Medical School has taken that on. Uh, they've taken that approach, recognizing, in fact, that most medical students come from households where their parents are already doctors or households with very high income. So medical schools have not been a microcosm of the society, yet their graduates are expected to serve everybody in society. So this is a way that the University of California Davis has chosen to level the playing field and they feel confident that that has worked for them. Also in preparation for this, I took a look at a statement that was issued by my alma mater, and that is the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Uh, Virginia is one of those states that allows their schools to uh, practice affirmative action in hiring decisions or, in, excuse me, in admissions decisions. And um, one of the first things that they said to qualify their statement, that is at William and Mary to qualify the statement is, they have to await guidance from the U.S. Department of Education, as well as Virginia state agencies about how to do this. Um, that's one thing I want you to know is that uh, a, a judge or a set of judges, as is the U.S. Supreme Court, can make a decision, but they don't give you all the details about how to carry that decision out. So um, the U.S. Department of Education is left with the burden of try to, trying to figure this out. How do we make this legal? Um, and how do we comply with the law as well as being sensitive uh, to what has been done and what the needs are uh, for those particular communities, states, universities? So uh, William and Mary is awaiting guidance. Uh, but they want to make sure that we understood and they issued this statement uh, to all of us. They understand that they're being asked to consider how students are recruited and who goes there. Within the law, William and Mary will remain intentional about recruiting the best and brightest students from a broad spectrum of backgrounds and experiences. We will ensure that William and Mary continues to be a place where great minds and hearts find great opportunities to learn, grow, and to contribute. So uh, I felt good about that statement coming from my alma mater. Uh, I do know, uh, obviously, every state is going to take a different position on this, likely. And that's why that guidance from uh, the U.S. Department of Education is going to be so important. Uh, it's also uh, equally true that I think we will see in some instances an increase in applications to historically Black colleges and universities. Um, I offer this to students who maybe had considered going to an Ivy League college or college that um, they aren't the only alternatives for a great education. Um, William and Mary, my alma mater, is considered to be a public Ivy, uh, which is to say uh, not a pure Ivy League school in the sense that Harvard or Yale is, but one of the very best public institutions in the United States of America. Um, my 
oldest child, my son, uh, graduated from what is considered to be a Black Ivy. He graduated from Tuskegee University in 2021, and is considered the number three HBCU in the country, I think, at this time. So there are alternatives <clears throat> in terms of the HBCUs, as well as alternatives in terms of public uh, colleges and universities that offer a very high quality education and who are still interested in ensuring that there is a diverse uh, population uh, at those particular schools. So I hope this discussion has been helpful to you to sort of dissect what all of this means. Um, I see this as yet another turning point for us but I don't see it as an insurmountable one. I trust that some schools will adapt, some students will adapt, and uh, we'll continue to see our students of color get high quality educations, regardless of wherever it is that they have to find them. Thanks so much for being a part of the Local Matters family. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.